Hello and welcome. This is another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Um, the studios that we're in now are so cool, they have a little button where the, where the big windows that we look out onto the world... <laughs> the big windows. The big yeah. window. Yeah. And then you press a button and it all goes opaque. It is. It's very sci-fi, which is obviously in keeping with the book we're going to be talking about shortly. Do you want windows but like this? I do, yes. Imagine having that at home. Or I could just press a button and everything gets very opaque very quickly. And then you, the rest of your family could just disappear. They could just leave me in peace to watch the footy, <laughs> etc. Uh, yes, no, I'm a big fan of that. Now, the only issue is, are, is it one way opaque? So can ah, all the kind of young trendy yes. people the other side of the window oh. see us? The achingly trendy lot. Uh, yes. Well, actually, I don't mind because, uh, frankly, you know, them looking in at us and thinking that's where I could be if I really, really work hard. Uh, and lose and, about 40 and years <laughs> and grow a beard <laughs> and sandals. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and the inability to wear socks like normal people. Anyway, you know, I can't <laughs> keep going on about How's the that. world of horses? Oh, it's going fabulously well. What's yes. the best horse you've seen recently? The best horse... Um, well, I, I mean, one wouldn't want to single any of them out, really. They're, they're all doing marvellously well. How's, how's the world of classical music? I'm well, following it assiduously. They, they're all doing very well. Are they all? They're, they're all, all doing it. And it would be wrong to single out <laughs> one composer over any other. But they're all going very well. They're all going very However, well. However, that piece of Mozart, oh yes, which which went with the Horse of the Year show. Oh yes, you that played that. Yes, combines the two of us. It does, doesn't in it? In a very yeah, yeah, real yeah. way. In a very very da, da, real da, da, da. way. No, no, that's Ski Sunday. <laughs> okay, that's that's the wrong. That's the wrong. Did, did Mozart write for Ski Sunday as he well? Did, did yeah. he? Great. He, he, he was the Hans Zimmer of his day. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> Hans Zimmer. He always wanted to be like Max Richter. Yes, that's yes, basically yeah, what it is. Anyway, how was Metallica? Was uh, Metallica was great. Goodness me, yeah. So they were which obviously... Of their, which of their songs did you like the most? Well, it would be... <laughs> I can't single any one of them out. I got there I, literally as they walked on stage and uh, right into the pit where uh, my friend was waiting for me. And, and then I left right at the end of the main set. And hilariously, when I got to the train station, Twickenham train station, to, to go back... Uh, the train was already half full of people coming back from Royal Ascot. Nice, all wearing absolutely all wearing their uh, black ties and fascinators and all that kind of stuff. And a bunch of us very leery, beery, sweaty Metallica fans got on. Did you recognise any of your? No, I didn't. No, I didn't see any of my horse friends. Uh, Isn't that Matthew? Well, I, I love that that's your voice that you've gone to straight away. For And, and how wrong you could Lord, be. Lord and Lady Horse. <laughs> Lord and Lady Horse. Is that right? No, it's not right. No, that? they're not called Lord and Lady Horse. The Earl of no, Horse. The Earl of Duke of Horsedom. <laughs> no. So uh, so there you go. Yes. yes Thanks for getting in touch with the show. You can uh, you can email us at any time. You can, yes. Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Yahoo. And yeah. you can tweet us at Books of the Year. Uh, Saki Books. Do you think I said that right? How would you Saki, say? yes, Saki, S A Q I. Just a response to the last uh, episode that we brought you is a quote from Wally Funk. You want to do a little arm wrestling? <laughs> Which Saki says was a highlight. Well, it's the first time I've been challenged to do any kind of wrestling with uh, a woman. She was, in her yes, 80s. yes. In fact, any woman at all. <laughs> no woman has ever offered. <laughs> No, no do any wrestling for that to be qualified at all. Um, Francis Crossland uh, also tweeted us about that episode. Excellent edition, most interesting. Hope I'm as lively at eighty. I had a number of people getting in contact with me privately saying, "Yes, she well, sounded... they rang you up at home." Yes, they rang me up. At home. Is that Matt? <laughs> it's the Earl of Horse here. <laughs> I would like to say 
<laughs> in the strongest possible terms. The, the Lord and Lady Horse <laughs> would like we to were, be like yeah, Wally Funk. Yes, very much so. Yes, yeah. Uh, hello, Neil. Uh, books of the year listening to Wally Funk. Wow, what a whirlwind. I'd love to fly with her by my side. Yes. Um, moi, uh, who includes quite a lot of uh, emojis in their Twitter name, uh, not so much of a fan. You can understand why they didn't want her in space. My God, what a loud woman. OK, well, thanks for that. Other, other views, you know, <laughs> do exist. Paul Dawes. Um, Australian band Spiderbait paid homage to Wally Funk by naming an album after her. Cracking tunes as well. Wow, great. I should seek them out. Spider bait sound like my kind of thing. So, yes. Um, shall I do this one here? Yeah, do that one. Yeah. Right, an email from Sandra Golding, Rhymes with Folding. Uh-huh. Uh, welcome back, friends. I loved your last and latest podcast with Wally Funk. I downloaded three podcasts with her on them last week, and yours was easily the most entertaining. Oh, please. The other two, Woman's Hour and Steve Wright, were very BBC. Oh, dear. Well, there you go. What do you think about that? I think that, well, they're both on the BBC, so, you know. That's why they're the very BBC. BBC, Loved her enthusiasm and hope she does indeed get to go into space. Now, about books you can read as children, I was interested to hear the role Enid Blyton's Mallory Towers had on Louis Theroux's schooling uh, when he was on Desert Island Discs. There was a little bit of cross-pod pollination here. Him and his brother choose to go to boarding school after reading her books as children. I'm surprised that no one has... Chosen the magic faraway tree. Oh my goodness! Yes, I love those books. Did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, Moonface, all that. Uh, yeah, love the stories of Moonface, yep. the Saucepan Man, yep. Silky the Fairy, and Dame Washalot. Don't remember her. Who yeah. wouldn't want to? Li- you'd given up by then. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to live in a land where you could eat bizarre flavored ice cream? Who in indeed? The land of wishes and the land of birthdays. Uh-huh. Please don't keep us waiting so long for your next podcast. Love the show, Steve, and keep up the gym, Simon. Keep up the gym. What's that? What were they trying to... <laughs> Meaning what? Yeah, no, no, you should definitely take that in the wrong way. I think she's just saying, you know, keep going to the gym. Well, I am you know, that's going a good to the gym, thing. except we'll go have to, to come gym. and do this. Yes, right. Um, Fiona Spears, rhymes with beers, uh, is a West Sussex expat, now lives in Pickerington, Ohio. Hello, Fiona. In the USA. She says, hey, Simon and Matt. Hey. I've just finished listening to your latest offering featuring the fearless Wally Funk. The experience unexpectedly reminded me of two incidents from my past that have stuck with me all my life. The second one first, the strength of piano wire is what holds my husband together, literally. Now, the reason we're talking about piano piano wire is because Wally said that's what one of the things on the moon is made of. Is it the tires of the a rover, the moon rover, are made of piano wire. And he said, um, uh, this is uh, Fiona says, uh, my husband broke his neck in 1981, uh, rendering him quadriplegic at the time, and maybe still, the gold standard spinal fusion surgery entailed using the, or putting the broken vertebra back together with piano wire. I've never bothered to research why that was or is the material of choice, but it's held him in good stead for 38 years, so there must be something to it. Plus, if Wally said it, it must be true. Uh, And my first story is much more fun and opportune as it relates both to Matt's horse house slip of the tongue and books. Ah, In in 1975... I was a 15-year-old studying for my O-level English Lit exam at the now-defunct Holy Family Convent School in Littlehampton. It was well known throughout the school that I and my three best friends were horse-mad. We hacked and schooled and jumped and pony-clubbed and Jim Carners, hi Matt, our ponies at every opportunity. Indeed, obviously. Well done. That year's Shakespeare-required play was Julius Caesar. One day, my turn came to read Morellus's... Was it Morellus? 
We don't know. Morellis' famous, famous Act 1, Scene 1 speech. We obviously don't even need to recite Wherefore it Wherefore rejoice. <laughs> what conquest brings me home? It's, it's Lord Horse come, come to life. Uh, it was one of the many speeches we had been required to learn by heart. And I was as confident as a 15-year-old could be in my knowledge of the passage. Off I went, zipping along, until I reached the very last stanza. Run to your horses, fall upon your knees. Yeah. Uh, at which point, the class began to snicker and the authoritative hand of Mrs. Whiteley went up, urging me to stop. She asked me to read the line again, which I did. And again, which I did. She then asked another student to read the line, which they did. And finally it dawned on me that I had memorised the line... Run to your horses. As... Run to your horses. <laughs> You've just mixed them both up. Therefore ruining the punchline. Oh, OK. Yeah, do, 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 that that again. do that again. Memorise the line. <laughs> run, to, run to your houses. As... Run to your horses. Yeah, you see, Mrs. Whiteley had one last comment. Fiona, you have a one-track mind. And to this day, I contend horses makes just as much, maybe more sense, as houses. And I'm still surprised the bard didn't think so as well. Long-time listener, love the pod, keep them coming. Is that Fiona Spears rhymes with Fiona beers? Fiona Spears rhymes with beers, now in the US of A. Right, well, shall we do... Uh, I'll just do this one. Yeah. Got a big guest. Oh, is she about to come in? I've got no idea because we've got an opaque window. We've got an opaque window and we so, can't we can't open the door. Or she can't open the door. Our producer's saying she can't open the door. No, and we can't see who we it is. We can't see it. Shall she I? could be able to see anyone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Pamela Jenkins and Carl Novicki. Novitsky, probably. Novitsky, yeah. okay. Yeah. Pamela and Carl. Dear Simon, I'm a colonial commodore from Canada. My husband is an expat from Brighton. We love Scala Radio. And as I've just started working from home, Yes, I'm able to get work done. I now listen to you and Charles every day. Uh, that's Charles Nove who does of breakfast. Of course, it's Charles, yes. We were so happy to be able to get a copy of your book on a recent visit to the UK, <laughs> as it's not available in Canada. Oh, dear. Is it not available in Canada? <laughs> it's next oh, on our list to read. We love the Books of the Year podcast, and it prompted us to join Audible. And we have enjoyed several of the recommended books so far, with our favourites being The Spy and the Traitor, Transcription, and The King's Witch. We look forward to many more years of banter and chat with you and Matt. Indeed. Are we, are we still sponsored by Audible? Are they still giving us any money? No. No, they're not. But well, so. I mean, we love that you've gone to Audible, but if you could, you know, Harry's Razors or The Economist or Yoko Ono. Are we still sponsored the Guardian? by Yoko Ono? The Guardian. Uh, the Guardian. The Guardian. Yeah, well, I always love feel very well, you know, very, I have warm feelings towards all our sponsors. I do. Even I'm, if yes. they've, they've stopped. Even if they've dropped us like... So much hot bricks. Yes. Mm. Right. Oh, well. we, uh, let, let's keep some of this entertaining yes. correspondence for <laughs> either another show or later on. Depend, because, frankly, if, if Jeanette doesn't turn up, we're just going to be sitting it's here reading correspondence. Absolutely. Or we could just talk about, you know, holidays. You could interview me about my book. I could. I mean, when are we going to do that? That's, that's, like, a, yes. that's one of my books of the year. Yeah, absolutely. When's your, about my new book. You've got, uh, can you talk about it? I don't think you can, can you? Well, I can tell you it's coming out next year. Um, it's not finished. It's not so. How far in are we? I've done about seventy thousand words, seventy-five thousand words. Okay, and I think there's about another twenty to go. Okay, can I ask 000. you then? And this is a genuine question: um, Do you know how it's going to end with twenty thousand words to go? More, yes, more or less. There's oh, always right, a okay. few surprises. You go, oh, they're dead. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. So sometimes okay. there are there are a few surprises along there. Okay, but I went last week. I visited. The place of the denouement. 
Oh, good. I needed a special train. Oh, not a special train. I didn't have a special train. <laughs> I got an ordinary train. <laughs> Simon Mayo train. <laughs> it was a special train visit <laughs> to this aforementioned place. Ooh. So I, I had to case the joint. Okay. And I spoke to some of the people who were running the joint, and I didn't tell them what I was there for. You, you didn't tell them what you were there for? No. Did you I not have to give them, tell them details? No, because it's open to the public. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. I wasn't just okay. in someone's house. <laughs> Let me in. I'm a writer. <laughs> I will not tell you why. Books of the Year podcast. <laughs> fine. In you come then. In you come. Come some audible. No <laughs> thanks. Would you like a copy of The Economist? Mm. <laughs> Stubbly, you say? <laughs> <laughs> May I recommend these razors with the five blades? Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I'll give you an update on how it's coming along on our next podcast. Excellent right. idea. M- meantime, let's talk to a proper author. Well, this is Books of the Year, and how fantastic that we have Jeanette Winterson in with her very latest uh, book, which is called Frankenstein. Should it be? Should I run it more as as one word? Because the way it's broken up on the cover, Jeanette suggests I should say Frankenstein. Well, as long as they know that there's a kiss in the middle. Okay, Frankenstein, and then very importantly, a love story. Anyway, Matt's going to describe. Yeah, so it's it's a very colourful cover. So we've got it's a sort of very dark purple background, and then Jeanette Winterson. Well, Jeanette is written in red, Winterson in pink, and Frankenstein, a love story in block pink, and then three red X's across the front as well. Which either you could take as sort of three kisses, or or you could take as triple X, (laughs) as a bit saucy, or you could take as stitches. Stitches? Oh, yeah, no, you could. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, of course you could. Stitches. Actually, was that the point? Well, Have I completely missed the whole no, point? No, you haven't missed the point. You've got the points. There were many points. Oh, there were many points? Yes. What a very nice way of putting yeah. it, Jeanette. You're, you're, you're yeah. art, the, the art people on this have done a fantastic job, is what yeah. we're saying. Well, the proof has, did, did have hand-stitched stitches. We had 100 special ones that were sewn by a designer, actually, just down the road in Old Street. She had to do them herself. So she, she hand-stitched what? She did. The... She hand-stitched the X's on the proof. For wow. about 100 special copies. Oh, special copies. We didn't notice, get those. I didn't, I didn't know notice we didn't that, get that one didn't come through my door. Whatever happened to the special, special copy? It's too late now. Yeah. The book's out. <laughs> Can she... Uh, <laughs> Can she stitch you another one, love? I'll ask her. <laughs> Knock off a couple more. <laughs> anyway, so Jeanette Widdison is here. So Frankenstein is the new novel. So this is the bit I'm looking forward to the most. I want to hear you describe everything about this book. So tell us, as an opening gambit, Jeanette, <laughs> tell us about Frankenstein. Okay. It starts in 1816 on Lake Geneva, the fateful holiday when Mary Shelley, a young woman, not yet 19, goes there with her lover Shelley, the poet Byron, uh, her stepsister, uh, who's Byron's mistress at the time, and John Polidori, who's a surgeon. They're, going, they're having a lovely holiday and then it starts to rain and they all get bored and cross and there's nothing to do. So Byron says, OK, we've all got to write a ghost story. He can't think of one, so he just becomes murderous and restive. Polidori writes a story called The Vampire, which then becomes the foundation for all future vampire stories, which is pretty incredible. Mary Shelley can't think of anything at all. Um, and she's tearing her hair out because you know, she's, she's the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, the first feminist. She's got a lot to live up to. You know, her lover's a famous poet. One night she has a vision and it is a vision. So the the rain is outside. It's exactly like those old hammer horrors of the movies. You know, there's lightning flashing across the lake. It's 
pouring down and she has a vision of what she calls the student of unhallowed arts kneeling by his bed and suddenly this this monster figure comes in that he's created and out of that comes the most famous monster story of all Frankenstein and I wanted to take that early beginning and put it into where we are now not in the future not in a dystopia but where we are now because Mary Shelley's original story it's like a message in a bottle or a flare flung across time to us 200 years later because she couldn't imagine this but here we are right now about to share the planet with self-created life forms not made out of the discarded body parts of the graveyard but out of the zeros and ones of code and I wanted to bring her moment and our moment together so then my story moves forward in time to a young trans doctor called Rye Shelley. Rye turns out to be short for Mary, uh, who's having a relationship with the mysterious, charismatic Victor Stein, who works in machine learning uh, and computer technology and is the kind of acceptable face of robotics and AI. And we follow that story as well. So there's nothing in the book that I've had to make up because actually where we are now technologically is so far-fetched, so outlandish, so unprecedented that all you have to do is read about it and then put it into fiction. And I did that because I wanted the general public to start being involved in this conversation because if we don't, we're going to end up with a general artificial intelligence probably achieved by Google or Facebook. There's billions of pounds going into this and it's all private money and we'll wake up one day and the world will look very different and we'll say, hey, where did that come from? And I wonder if just, and this is just like a sidebar, really, also AI run by men, uh, yeah. which will have uh, implications further further down the line. Huge, and you're, you're exactly right. And I wish it were a sidebar, but I think it's going to start becoming the main event, you know, because look, we've had a hundred years where a lot of the barriers and prejudices about women's achievements, advancements, capacities have been removed and we've seen women forge ahead in every area of life which is brilliant but now on the cusp of, of, of this new world women aren't going into computer science they aren't going into IT they aren't going to, into tech startups not at all so we could face a future which becomes a new exclusion zone for women and I always say to mothers and fathers look if you've got daughters teach them to code um it's it's an extraordinary book the uh the vision that you have for for this novel is is quite astonishing. It it appeared over how long? I mean, was it a, a jump that you made suddenly overnight? You thought actually I could tie I want to tie in Frankenstein with with AI, or was it something that you've been working on and and thinking about for a long time? Yeah, it came together. I've been reading a lot about AI for myself because I don't like being ignorant. And especially I don't like being ignorant when there's a, there's a lot of money riding on other people's ideas of the future. So I was taking new scientists, was catching up there. I was getting reading a lot of non-fiction books all around this subject. I wanted to learn. And then, of course, we came up to the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I thought, oh, I haven't read that since I was 21. I read it again. Read it again. I just thought, what a remarkable piece of work for a young woman who was 19. Um, and then, of course, I, th I started thinking and I thought, wait a minute, Lord Byron's only legitimate daughter was Ada Lovelace. Um, she was the first person to use the word programming for a computer that hadn't even yet been built. You know, we're back really in the 1820s when Ada Lovelace came up with this. Astonishing. And I wanted to bring together all of these things that were just spinning around in my head. And I thought, I wonder if there's a story here. Uh, and of course, there was. Yes. Um, while Matt asks his first question, I'm just going to ask the three of you, shall I turn the air conditioning off? 
Is it a bit noisy? Are you too is it, cold? Is that the? I'm. I'm. Fine. You, you turn right? it off. Turn it off if you want. But I, I'm conscious you've just run from the. Tube, oh no, it's so. wonderful. I feel like I've been on a griddle. So <laughs> for me, this is lovely. If you're quite happy, fine. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll, but we'll, I don't want you guys to be cold because it's horrible when somebody says, "Oh no, leave it on," <laughs> and everybody's shivering away. But if I start to shiver, then it's going to go then, off. Anyway. Then that's why. I'll tell you why I was um, drawn to your book, Jeanette. Is yeah. that it's set um, as you've already alluded to in the near future, and when it comes to sci-fi, that's the kind I really like, mm-hmm. uh, rather than the sort of jetpacks and uh, you know food and a pill or whatever. Um, um, it's the this is not too far away from where we are now. Mm. And I was as I was reading, I was I was thinking of um, there's a TV program that's on at the moment called Years and Years, mm. which um, again I love is, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is set in that sort of. It, there are lots of things in that that you go, oh right, that's almost close to where we are right now. How yeah. fright, how frightening can it be when you set a novel in a future that seems very, very recognisable? Yeah. And as I was I was reading it, it the, the point that grabbed me about AI is, and again, you've you've sort of touched on this already, is how close we are right now. Mm. And I'll give you an example. I was on last night on my uh, laptop uh, trying to switch broadband providers, okay? And I was, you know there's those bits on the on the website where it says, talk to one of our, our teams. Yes. And I was talking to them, and I could tell that I was talking to a computer. It was a chatbot, wasn't it? It was clearly that. Yeah. But I know in five years' time, I'll probably not be able to tell. The, the question, the, the trees that they will come up with, mm. to and, and how frightening would that be? Mm. Where I think I'm talking, and forget that I'm switching broadband provider, I, it could be something else that I'm trying to do, that I won't be able to tell. There's that fa- famous Alan Turing test of, you know, how, do you, how can you tell whether the person or the thing that you're talking to is real or just a bunch of zeros and ones? Mm. And that is terrifying. It is terrifying. And of course, it was, you know, Alan Turing's pal at Bletchley Park, Jack Good, who went off to work in Silicon Valley. And he was the advisor to Stanley Kubrick on 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, Howl, you know, the murderous computer. And it was Jack Good in 1965 who came up with the phrase, our last invention, because he said, we will invent general artificial intelligence. And when we do, it's game over because we'll only program it once. And, and from then on, it will upgrade itself. And you have to remember with this thing, you know, people talk about, oh, even if we create it, we can stick it in a Faraday cage, you know. And the problem with scientists is they haven't read enough fairy stories. The genie in the bottle might take 300 years. It's going to get out. So once this thing is on the loose, it will it will work it out for itself. And any problem that you put to kind of general intelligence at the moment, you know, even if it's a game, like how do we solve traffic? Um, how do we stop war? How do we manage famine? The problem is always human beings. So the solution really would be to get rid of us. It, it, that seems the logical answer here, doesn't it? If, yeah. you, if you were looking at this, if you were a, an alien from another planet and you were looking at where we are right now mm. and you were thinking to yourself, well, I don't give humans long. Look at what they're doing. Mm. Look at, forget the planet. Forget what we're doing to the planet. Look at the relationship between them and AI don't give the humans long. Well, I'm not sure I'd keep us. I don't think we're that cute. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they'll soon get bored with our jokes. Why would you keep us? So I think we'll end up on some little reserve shoved away somewhere with automobiles and shopping malls because that's all we're fit for. Because AI, I mean, it doesn't eat. So it can take as long as it likes over dinner or with a conversation. It doesn't die. So the whole question of death becomes like a very different proposition. And it, can ta- it really can take forever to solve problems because mortality is to do with biology. Um, it's not to do 
with artificial intelligence. So what, what we're creating here is something that's going to be very strange. Now, sure, we're going to upgrade ourselves with smart implants. You know, Ray Kurzweil's idea is that we will become part of the intelligence we create, that there'll be a seamless interface between us um, and, and a sort of super web, I suppose. Maybe that will happen. I, th I think that's optimistic. I worry more that we will actually just wipe ourselves out. You know, we were lucky because we didn't exist with the dinosaurs. This time, we're going to be the dinosaurs. Well, this is a very cheery podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry about this, boys. Actually, you know, I mean... I, but, but here's the thing, because I don't read this book and feel gloomy. No, me neither. Because although, as Matt says, it's terrifying, mm. there's a feeling that I have about you... Re reading this book that actually it's that we're at the start of something mm. and it's exciting it is exciting yeah and so, i want to live through it i you know i want to be around to see what happens next but the trouble with human beings is every time we invent something really exciting and really great we screw it up don't we and we make sure it becomes a torment for ourselves or others um so I don't, I'm not really convinced by our capacity to manage this thing, especially if it's going to be smarter than us, but I, I, do, I do want to see it. You know, and then there, there's, a, there's a whole thing about Alcor in Phoenix, Arizona. That's the place where you can get your head frozen um, with, the, with a view to coming back to life later once we can upload consciousness onto a substrate not made of meat. And, you know, and I was brought up as an evangelical, so that seductive idea of this world is not my home, I'm more than my body, um, there's something else, uh, of Speak course. That resonates. And speaking of evangelicals, tell us about Claire because she has some interesting things to say. Yeah, well, there, there's a sort of double Claire in this. There's there's uh, there's a sex bot um, called Claire uh, because there's quite a few sex bots in here because at the moment, of course, uh, the. The most manufactured robot is a sex bot. Uh, China has loads in production, so does the USA. China needs them because it's going to have a shortfall of 33 million women because of its one-child policy. And I wish I was making up that sex bots are being promoted as a solution, but I am not. Wow. So you can have a companion who will, you know, you don't have to buy a dinner. She'll never argue with you. She always comes when you do. You can change her head when you're tired of it, and you can throw her at the wall and put her back together again, and she won't call the police. Um, this could be the way forward, and that's, you know, another the way that could be problematic for women. So in here, I've got a sex bot called Claire. I've also got a Christian evangelical called Claire. That was the one I was yeah. leading towards. If she decides that actually she might, that, that first of all, the idea of living forever would be fantastic and she thinks lots of right-wing evangelicals will invest in this. Um, and she also realises she can make a fast book uh, having what she calls the Christian companion which will presumably help all those lonely missionaries in far-flung fields uh, manage their desires. I thought you enjoyed writing her. I did. Look, I wanted the book to be funny because if you can make people laugh, they will accept things uh, rather than recoil. And I didn't want to preach. You know, I didn't want to get on the soapbox and say, this is how it's going to be. So there had to be a lot of jokes in there. Um, and, you know, as I said to you, the people we meet in, in 1816 are mirrored uh, in the 21st century and Lord Byron becomes Ron Lord who's an Essex geezer who makes a ton of money out of Bitcoin and manufactures sex bots but he thinks he's on a mission to help the world all those lonely men you know he says look there's no point waiting for Miss Wright uh, it's like waiting for the beach body you'll never have just get a sex yeah. bot and go with it there's a couple of phrases that are in here because I think as people can hear it's a it's a book that's full of very complex ideas some exciting ideas some terrifying mm. ideas um, some very complex philosophy going on but you use some phrases one of which is intervening in your own evolution mm. where suddenly you thinking and this is particularly with reference to the trans doctor Ray Shelley that, yeah. you, that, that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation where it suddenly 
felt more terrifying mm, mm. because the implications of that were being discussed in a way that I wasn't used to. Yeah, I mean, it's already happening um, in, in, in the way that we have just rather casually worked out how to extend our lifespan. You know, our grandparents might live to 53. Mary Shelley, for instance, died at 53. So did Shakespeare. We're used to living long as we've intervened through uh, medical help, largely. Um, already we know there's billions going into the idea of reversing the aging process, and that will probably happen. So I think I can imagine probably just outside our lifetime it will be possible to live to 150 or 200 but of course all the people doing that are exactly the people you really don't want to be around until they're 150 <laughs> or 200 I mean imagine you know Donald Trump could run for president like 10 times before you came in Matt and I were re uh, recalling an interview that we did with Yuval Noah Harari yeah who wrote Sapiens wonderful a, writer a wonderful and right at the end of that of Sapiens he took he's in this area about the yeah. future and about artificial intelligence yeah. and he he came up with what's yeah he he basically said that the the first human to live forever has already been born uh, his point being that obviously we as normal humans made up of the tissue that we have when we're born mm. uh, would never be able to live forever mm. but a hybrid mm. would mm. and his point was the first one to live forever with the resources to be able to live forever has already been born which again is terrifying because mm. You know, who knows who that person is? Uh, but if they've got those kind of resources, is that the kind of person you want living forever? No. And um, I think it's why we have to really keep a check on the likes of Facebook, Google, Peter Thiel, of PayPal, because there are a lot of rich enough individuals who are invested in their own immortality uh, and want to control ours and our access to it. So, you know, we're, we're in a world now which is actually more like um, the Borgias it's, or, or the Medicis, you know, it's a, it, it's a kind of enthroned mafia who are in charge of this. And um, we don't know what's going on because governments, our money, it is nowhere near the kind of money going in privately. So we have not a clue. We don't know what the Chinese are doing anyway, or the, or the Russians, but we certainly don't know what's happening, say, at Facebook and Google. Is it genuinely likely that in our lifetime people will be talking about being transhuman yes definitely um and, and what it, does that mean well it will mean there, there are a number of ways of looking at it one will mean that you can have a smart implant which continually monitors all of your organs so that there's no such thing as failure um we know that we're going to be able to grow stem cell organs to replace the ones that we've got so our own biology can be updated much more cleanly than it is at present so that will happen also the likes of ray kurzweil um who's chief engineer at google x really thinks that we can have an implant in our brain it'll just be the site it'll be a chip it's nothing no big deal um which will connect us seamlessly um to an enhanced web so all the information you need. You're not going to have to look at your phone or go, go, go and Google it in the way. You just have to ask the question. And it'll be like we always hoped prayer would be, that you would ask God and the answer would come back. Because essentially that's what we're creating. We're creating the God that we say we don't believe in. It's going to be this super being and everything we need will say, you know, what shall I do? Where shall I go? What's the answer to this? And it'll come back to us. Um, we will be seamless with data. So we will be data and we will be able to access all data. Um, for some people, that's a utopia. For some people, it's a nightmare. I, I want to take you back to um, to Mary Shelley writing yeah. Frankenstein, which obviously features a lot in the book as you're switching between this near future and back yeah. to her writing. Um, I was I was fascinated by that, that by that sort of th these these group of writers 
coming up with these stories. Mm. How much of that? I mean, I, I, there's a bit of a disclaimer towards the end of the book saying, obviously, this is, this is a story. Yeah. But how much of that was, was true? Uh, I, I particularly liked, and I don't know why this jumped out at me, but that she was deliberately vague about what Frankenstein was. In other words, whether Frankenstein was referring to the monster or the creator. It's that sort of classic mm. pedant thing of actually Frankenstein is the creator, not the monster. But yes, she, she, is. she is deliberately vague about that. So when you, because obviously you, you will have researched this, this meeting, this, this time where they were all on holiday together and, and coming up with these stories. How much of that was, is, has found its way into the book? Oh, all of it. I mean, all the facts there are real. That, that journey of eight years through her life until Shelley himself drowns um, off the Bay of Spetsay and she loses him, you know, having also lost three of her four children. You know, the amount of life they crammed into these short spaces is quite incredible. Um, but I wanted us to really to get a, a feel of that time where science is just really beginning to happen and everyone's excited about it. But it's not a time when it's all separated out the way it is now. So in her father's house, she, her father was William Godwin, who was a political radical. Uh, at his house, everybody would gather. It would be poets, scientists, philosophers, thinkers, and they talk about everything. You, and you were meant to be able to talk about everything. It wasn't specialised. So she sat through many conversations where the hot topic of the day in London at that time was whence proceeds the principle of life and that was because Luigi Galvani this crazy Italian scientist had been over and electricity had just been discovered and he was sticking electrodes into frogs legs and they were twitching and then because there was no health and safety or protocols he was allowed to go down to Newgate prison uh, and, and if you were hanged your body was automatically sent for dissection which was a pretty new thing to do in London and in Edinburgh he got some of the corpses and he was sticking his electrodes in them as well and Mary Shelley saw this and of course an arm would fly up or an eye would open there's some ghastly clarity or a cheek would twitch and people were saying, well, look, is this all there is then? Is it biology? Is it chemistry? And is it electricity? What's the soul? What's the spirit? And so there was a huge debate with people who were saying, how dare you say that human beings are just chemistry, electricity, biology? But the likes of Mary Shelley and other thinkers were saying, well, maybe that's true. And it was out of that that she had this idea that maybe you could create a creature. And Victor Frankenstein doesn't name his offspring, um, which is a tragedy, and it's one of the it's one of the tragedies of the monster that he's not named and he's not claimed. It's very upsetting that part of the book. It's very poignant, and also, of course, crucially, Victor Frankenstein doesn't educate his monster. And Mary Shelley was writing from her own experience because women were not educated. And she knew what it was like to long for learning, as the monster does. He has to teach himself to read. Um, and so we, what, what we see is this outcast figure, something that's been created but has not been loved. It's just one as other aspect I, I was intrigued to ask you about, Jeanette, if possible, and that is <clears throat> this period that you're writing about, now, 1815, 1816, 1817, was a huge tumultuous time there, there is big politics mm. here mm. um then and now in this world that you're talking about so we'd had the war of 1812 we'd had napoleon mm. we have in london in 1850 i only know this because i've just been doing some some work on it one of the most repressive governments in history mm. uh, there were many revolutionaries the cato street conspiracy always about always about to happen this kind of social change doesn't happen mm. with a benign political background and i'm i'm wondering what kind of in the background of this, what kind of big politics has to be in place? 
to allow your story to happen. No, it's absolutely right. I mean, the Shelleys were radicals um, and they were free thinkers. Um, they were against oppression. Look, you know, Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, had written a vindication of the rights of women, which was her answer to Tom Paine's The Rights of Man in the French Revolution. And you're quite right, because Britain at that time... Um, the, the aristocracy and the elite were terrified that there would be a revolution in England as there had been in France. Yes, and America yeah. was just really yeah. little. Yeah, and memory. of course France had sided with the breakaway, 13 breakaway American colonies. Um, so anything French then as now was really seen as very suspicious. <laughs> we don't want the French project. You know, it's no wonder we're going for Brexit. We've never <laughs> changed. So, you know, 1815, the end of the Napoleonic War is all victory for us, all that's great. Um, but also... It's the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so a huge oppression of the working man. And you've got the great city like Manchester where everything begins, uh, which is the engine of England, creating enormous wealth, but people living in abject poverty. You know, the, the novelist Mary Gaskell went into a factory about this time and she said, I have seen hell and it is white, because the cotton mills had no dust extraction. Right? And you went in there and they were breathing this. Most people who worked in the factories were dead at 32. Now, Mary Shelley knew about this. You know, the Peterloo Massacre happens at this time. So she knew what was going on. You know, they were both saturated in the politics of the day. And they believed that there could be a fairer world, a more just world. You know, Byron, even though he was an aristocrat, was one of the, I think he was the only peer, actually, who voted against the Frame Breaking Act in 1812, which meant that if you went in there as a weaver and you smashed up the frame in the factory... You could be killed. I mean, the penalty was the death penalty. So machines had rights. Machines were valuable. Human beings weren't. And Mary Shelley was looking at this. And, you know, it's the time when Engels was wandering around Manchester also with his friend Karl Marx and saying, this is what happens when men regard each other only as useful objects. And what I was worried about now with AI and the, the coming future of robotics is, Thinking back to Engels, is this what happens when men regard each other only as useless objects? Are we making ourselves redundant? So I just see a great sweep of time from the early, those early 1800s to where we are now, both politically, uh, technologically, uh, and of course in this fight for human justice. Jeanette Winderson's book is Frankenstein, A Love Story. What are you going to be working on next, Jeanette? Oh, Jeanette? I'm doing a collection of essays, actually, which go forward with um, AI. There's 12 essays about it all. It's actually called Jurassic Car Park. Um, <laughs> because I just think we're going to be shoved in this bloody car park with our ridiculous toys while AI runs the world. Jeanette, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Violet Manners, and welcome to Hidden Heritage, the podcast that brings you inside Great Britain's favourite destinations. From the same team that brought you the number one history podcast, Duchess, Hidden Heritage will uncover the fascinating stories behind the UK's brightest shining hidden gems. You'll hear from top experts in British heritage, including custodians, historians, artisans, experts, and even the craftsmen and restorers who've worked on some of the most celebrated historic buildings. We will share the untold and unique stories that celebrate UK heritage, from landmarks to architecture, artifacts to myths and legends. Hidden Heritage will highlight a side to British history you have never seen before. I'm your host, Violet Manners, and founder of Heritage X, and I invite you all to join us on this exciting journey. This is Hidden Heritage. You can find Hidden Heritage wherever you listen to your podcasts.